The reading is taken from Mark chapter 14, verse 53 to 72. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, elders, and teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this man-made temple and in three days will build another not made by man. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses? he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Good morning. Please do keep your Bibles open. That's Mark chapter 14. And let's pray together as we begin. Our Father in heaven, we need your help this morning as we come to this passage that is so painful to read and yet in many ways so glorious. We ask that you would help us not just to understand what happens, but help our hearts to be warmed. Help us to see afresh the beauty of Jesus. And we long, Father, that as we leave 
this morning that each one of us would love Jesus more for what we've read together. And we pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. It is sometimes said that you don't get to know someone properly until you see how they behave under pressure. You don't really get an insight into their true character, their their true color, until you see how they behave when they're really up against it. And it's uh, it's true in all kinds of ways. It's true in the sporting world. Uh, It's one thing to score a penalty, but but only a truly great footballer can score a penalty in the World Cup final. Uh, It's true in in the world of the office. How many of us have a manager or a supervisor who can be dreadfully pleasant and nice to be with when everything is going well, when there's no pressure on the office. But the moment the pressure comes, when the stress levels rise, how often do we see our managers becoming different people? They become inconsistent, harsh, unfair when the pressure comes on. And it's true in our relationships with our friends, with our spouses. I remember one Older Christians saying once that it is never a wise thing to marry someone until you've seen them under pressure. Because pressure brings out what's really inside. It shows us true colors, true character. You don't really get to know someone until you see how they behave under pressure. And this morning, as we continue our series in Mark's Gospel... We're going to look at two people who experience immense pressure. Two people that we've got to know very well these last few months as we've looked at this amazing gospel of Mark. Two people that we've seen much of. We've got a glimpse of their personality, their character, their priorities, what they're about as people. We know them very well. But this morning, as these two people face immense pressure, we get a true insight into what they're really like. Of course, we're thinking about Jesus and Peter. And it's striking how Mark has arranged his account of this dramatic event. I wonder if you noticed as you read it through, the camera keeps flicking back and forth from Jesus to Peter. So it starts off first 53 with Jesus, then 54 Peter, then 55 Jesus, then 66 back to Peter, and then finally Chapter 15, back to Jesus. The camera is going back and forth, back and forth, and the effect is unavoidable. As readers, we're meant to compare and contrast Jesus and Peter as these two men experience unbelievable pressure. My goal this morning is simple as we study these two men, and it's this. I hope each one of us comes away from this morning with a fresh appreciation of the beauty of Jesus, a fresh insight into how glorious, how how wonderful he is in the face of pressure. And as a diamond sparkles all the more brightly against a black cloth, so I think Jesus and his glory shines out all the more brightly as we compare it to Peter's character, and as we'll see, indeed, our character as well. You only really get to know someone 
when you see them experience pressure. And so this morning, I want us to see two things about our two characters. First of all, we see the faithfulness of the king. And secondly, we'll see the failure of his people. The faithfulness of the king and the failure of his people. So first of all, looking at Jesus, the faithfulness of the king. Uh, Mark 14 is a chapter full of drama. We've had the agony of Jesus in in the garden, um, just a few verses back. We've had his betrayal, his arrest. And now, as we pick up the story, we have his appearance before the high priest and the Jewish leaders. And, And there's no doubt about what's at stake in this night many years ago. Verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. There's no doubt about what is at stake. And it's hardly a trial as we look at what happens next. My wife, who's a lawyer, reassures me that the normal course of events in a trial is this. You have, a, you have the accused brought forward then the evidence is submitted to the court. And then a verdict is arrived at. And then finally a sentence is passed. That's the normal order of events in a trial. But do you see here tonight, in this fateful night, the order is all reversed. The Jews already have their verdict. They've had their verdict since Mark chapter 3. They want this man dead. They don't care why. They don't care how. They just want him dead. Now, they have to find evidence. They have to find a reason that the Romans will accept to allow them to kill Jesus. Jesus is a man under pressure. His life is at stake. It's late at night. It's behind closed doors. He's upstairs in a private house with literally not a friend on earth, all alone, faced with a group of people who have wanted him dead for years. He's a man under pressure. And when to feel how wrong this whole night is, how this shouldn't be the case, this chapter is full of irony, is dripping with irony. So there's some examples. The Jews think they can judge this man Jesus. But as we'll see, he is in fact the judge of the world. They are trying to judge the judge. Or uh, later on in verse Um, 65, some men strike Jesus and they they mock him saying, prophesy. Obviously, they think he's not a prophet. But of course, three times in Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10, Jesus has prophesied this very event when he's betrayed into the hands of the Jews. The prophet is mocked for claiming to be a prophet. This whole night should not be. This should not be happening. And Jesus is experiencing a false trial, a mock trial. So he's a man under pressure, a man up against it. But of course, it's much, much worse than that, isn't it? Back in verse 36 of Mark chapter 14, we're told that the reason why Jesus was in such agony in the garden was not because of the taunts that he was about to face, not because of the trial, not because of the beatings, not because of the crown of thorns or the nails driven through his hands, not because of the suffocation that comes with crucifixion. No, none of these things were causing him agony in the garden. Rather, it was the prospect of drinking 
to the bottom, the cup of God's wrath for the sins of the world. Jesus was in agony at the prospect of in just a few hours bearing that punishment on himself. So as we see this man Jesus um, in this mock trial late at night, he is a man under great pressure. His life is at stake and even more, he's about to face God's full judgment for the sins of the world. No human has ever experienced pressure like this, never, not even close. And so what will Jesus do under pressure? What are his true colors? And do you notice he's given the perfect opportunity to escape, to to be freed from this trial because there's no evidence. So uh, verse 56, we're told, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Uh, Or later on, verse 59, yet even then their testimony did not agree. The Jews just can't summon enough evidence to actually convict Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, if everything goes well, he, he might escape from this trial. And then the final question comes, maybe out of desperation. The high priest asks in verse 61, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? All Jesus had to do at this point was to say nothing. Just be quiet and they'd have no evidence. The trial would fall down. The Romans would not be convinced of the need to kill this man. He could just stay silent. And for the last three years, he's been telling his disciples to be quiet about who he is, to hush up the truth about Jesus. So why not just stick to his strategy and go for silence? Not to lie, but just be quiet. And then maybe, just maybe, the cup of God's wrath could pass from him. He's under immense pressure to be quiet. But of course, he's not quiet. And we see the faithfulness of the king. Verse 62. I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. This is the first moment in Mark's gospel Jesus openly confesses to being the Christ, the first time. And what a moment to break his silence, openly. What a moment. Because it's the moment when to speak out ensures his death. And he really goes for it, doesn't he? He doesn't just say he's the Christ. He also quotes two very famous Old Testament passages um, about the Son of Man from Daniel 7 and sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One from Psalm 110. Two massive Old Testament passages about the one to come, the Christ. And in quoting these passages, Jesus shows the audience that he's more than just an earthly king coming to overthrow the Romans. No, he's telling the Jews that he is God's transcendent, glorious king of the nations, of the whole world, who will sit at the right hand of the Father and who will come and judge the world at the end of time. No earthly king. He is the real deal. And that is why the, the, the clothes are torn by the high priest. He doesn't hold back Jesus. He unveils his true glory. He tells him exactly who it is, knowing very well that this confession will ensure his death. So in this little moment, we see the true faithfulness of the king. 
he chooses the cross at this moment. He steps forward. He gives them the evidence they need to kill him. We see the faithfulness of the king. There's some debates about verse 62, about when this unveiling of great power will happen. Uh, some say that it'll happen when Christ's return at the end of time, and we'll see the, the full glory of Christ. And that, that may be true, and it certainly seems to be part of it. But I, I want to just um, argue that it actually might refer to events much closer in time, to the events that are about to unfold in the coming hours and days, months and weeks as well. Not everyone agrees with this, but I think that um, first and foremost, Jesus is talking about his resurrection, his ascension, and then the pouring out of his spirit at Pentecost, and then the ever-increasing growth of the church as the risen Christ um, oversees the world. And the Jewish leaders, as they hear rumors of this man who they killed coming back to life and fueling this great revival of the church, they are bound to wonder if they've made a dreadful mistake, if they have indeed killed this figure of great power and glory. But that's our first point. We see a man under great pressure, and we, yet we see the faithfulness of the king, faithful to step forward and to choose the cross. Well, that's our first point, the faithfulness of the king. Now we see the failure of his people the failure of his people. We know the story well, don't we? Uh, We know what Peter does. But we need to realize he is a man under great pressure as well. His beloved leader has been arrested. Uh, The unthinkable is on the cards. He, He might actually die as well. And it seems that in this passage, Peter for the first time realizes that his whole world might well turn upside down. His leader might die and that his whole expectation for the future could be completely wrong. He is a man under great pressure. And do you notice how Mark builds up the pressure for Peter? He has those three questions put to him. But do you notice the first question comes from a single servant girl in verse 69. Sorry, um, earlier on, verse 67. Just a single girl says to him, um, are you... With Jesus, and he says no. But then the next question comes, verse 69, from the same girl, but now in a group of people. And then lastly, verse 70, the group ask Peter, Are you the follower of Christ? There's a building up of pressure. The stakes are getting higher by each question. Until finally we have that heartbreaking moment when he when he says, I am not, and the cock crows a second time. But we just need to take a second to to explore just how low Peter goes in this moment. And I'm going to get a little bit geeky, a little bit technical, so bear with me. If if that's not your thing, just uh, snooze off for a second, then I'll tell you when to wake up again. But um, but by and large, the NIV is a brilliant translation, and I'm thrilled we have it. But at this particular point, I have to disagree with it in verse 71. Because it says there in verse 71 that Peter began to call down curses on himself. Now that last little bit, on himself, is not there in the Greek, in the original. Uh, The the NIV have added that bit in. And I think they shouldn't have done that. The, um, the, The Greek verb there is not reflexive. So we're not meant to read it and supply the reflexive pronoun on himself. 
Um, the, the, the verb there is intransitive, which means it needs a direct object to make sense. But there is no direct object there in the Greek. And so we're left having to supply ourselves the object of the cursing. And it doesn't make sense for it to be Peter. From the context, Peter is cursing Jesus. And that's what we miss from the NIV translation. This is heartbreaking, isn't it? After three years on the road together, having shared supper together, shared the highs and lows of ministry, Peter curses his beloved leader, Jesus. It is a dreadful moment in the Gospels. And you can imagine why he does it in a way, can't you? Just imagine for a moment that you are a big fan of football and you support Chelsea. And someone says to you, Oh, do you support Man U? And you're desperate to kind of distance yourself from the dreaded Manchester United. So what do you do? You say, of course not. I hate Man U. They're rubbish. I'm a Chelsea man. You see, the best way to distance yourself from someone else is to curse the other person. They're rubbish. Of course not. And so too Peter here with Jesus. He curses his beloved master. Now, we need to be clear, Peter is no coward. Earlier on in chapter 14, he's even able to to draw his sword and attack one of the the crowds. And that's a very brave thing to do. I I wouldn't have done that, faced with an angry mob, outnumbered to get my sword out and defend Jesus. That is an incredibly brave thing to do. So he's no coward. And notice, he's the only disciple to follow Jesus into this final scene, into the, the courtyard. Everyone else is left at this stage. So Peter's not a coward by any normal definition of the word um, coward. But yet even Peter, under immense pressure, fails Jesus. And so often as we read this story, we're told that we're meant to try harder than Peter. You know, Peter messed up, but we need to try harder. We need to dig deeper, just be better than Peter and be more faithful to Jesus. You know, go out tomorrow and tell everyone at work about Jesus and just do a better job than Peter. That's the application. But I think that misses the point completely of what Mark is trying to do for us in this story of of Jesus and Peter mixed together. No, I think we're meant to realize that Peter is the best chance Jesus had of having a faithful disciple. Peter's been always there with Jesus. Every incident in Mark's gospel, Peter's there. He's heard everything. Um, he's, he's been the bravest of disciples so far, following him right into the courtyard. So Peter is the best chance Jesus has of a faithful follower. And even Peter cracks under pressure and denies Jesus. So I think that the application for us, for us is not mainly to try harder. Rather, it is to recognize that Peter stands in the place for all of us. That Peter is the best of us, and even Peter fails. And so we too fail. For each one of us, there will be enough pressure applied to our lives somewhere, somehow, that we will deny Jesus. We will crack. We will fail. And of course, we can do that in all kinds of ways. I can remember when I was younger at school, and people would say to me, what did you do on Sunday? And I I would lie blatantly about where I was. I was so embarrassed about being a Christian, about going to church, that I would lie about what I was doing. I failed. And I'm sure each one of us can think of similar occasions. 
And of course, we can deny Jesus in different ways, in our priorities, in, in our lifestyle, and how we think, in what we love most, internally, what, what people can't see. We can deny Jesus in all kinds of ways. But the point here is that even the best disciple denies Jesus, and so too do we. But as we take a step back and think about how Mark has, has woven these two stories together, I think the point is that we're meant to step back and praise the faithful king. Because do you realize that Jesus, as he's upstairs on trial for his life, he knows downstairs that Peter is disowning him. He knows that. We're told that early on in Mark 14. But it's because Peter fails Jesus that Jesus is willing to step forward and say, I am the king, now come and kill me. He dies for failures. He dies precisely because we fail and do not follow him as we should. And I think Mark's trying to show us the beauty of Jesus, that he has come to rescue us, each one of us, even when we fail. He has come to dress us in royal robes that we don't deserve and that only he deserves. He has come to die on the cross for each one of us. And of course, if we have embraced the wonder of free forgiveness, then we would want to tell our friends about Jesus out of gratitude and love for Jesus. But we must get the order right first. We don't tell people about Jesus to win approval, to somehow prove ourselves to Jesus. No, we do it out of gratitude because we can, because we have such an amazing Savior who under great pressure remained faithful and chose the cross. It is sometimes said that you can only really get to know someone when you see how they behave under pressure. And this morning we have seen Jesus under more pressure than any human has ever experienced. And yet we see his true glory. We see the faithfulness of the king. And I hope we see something of his beauty, of his majesty, in his willingness to step forward, to choose the cross, to rescue failures like me and like each one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is the king of kings, the one enthroned at your right hand, and yet we thank you that he was willing to come and die a death of a criminal in the place of each one of us. And we thank you that even though we fail, we are dressed in royal robes because of the death of your son, Jesus. Amen.